Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. We try to help people recognize that you could take a step onto a scale or you could switch a food item and you can do things with your hands or your feet. Even if at the, that exact moment you're feeling, you're having the thought, this is completely worthless. There's no point in doing this. I'll never succeed. You, you can actually still choose a different motion with your hand. And that that is a surprisingly um, a surprising insight, I think, that a lot of people have, and it, it does make such a big difference. You're listening to Dr. Evan Foreman on Psychologists Off the Clock. We are three clinical psychologists committed to cutting-edge, integrative, and evidence-based strategies for living well. On this podcast, we bring you ideas from psychology that can help you flourish in your work, parenting, relationships, and health. I am Dr. Diana Hill, practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado. And from coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. We hope this podcast offers you ideas for how to live a full and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. So a number of people come into my practice with one of their goals and therapy being to help them with weight loss and more interested when it's about how to get people more in line with positive health behaviors and also how weight loss may connect them to living a longer life or engaging more in valued activities. And for a a large percentage of people, that is the case, that um, losing some weight may help them live more vibrant, long, healthful lives. That's right. Part of my work is in a medical setting as a psychologist in a hospital, and often I'll see patients who come to me who have been overweight or obese for many years, and it's starting to play a role in some preventable diseases that they have. And more and more over time, I think the the behavioral aspect of weight and of health, overall health maintenance is being looked at. And so I really enjoyed in this episode when I listened to your interview, Diana, hearing about some behavioral strategies that are really going to be helpful for people who do want to work on their health-related goals like weight loss. So there's plenty of diets out there to follow, but what trips people up isn't necessarily the diet plan itself. It's the psychological components to weight loss. And that's what Dr. Evan Foreman talks about in this episode is how to address some, not only the behavioral stuff, but some of the barriers and psychological stuff that shows up when you're trying to make a a behavior change. What do you see in your practice, Debbie, in terms of some of the psychological factors that trip people up? Well, I think there's the emotional piece of it that often we eat when we're faced with difficult emotions, including shame about eating. So it's this funny cycle. Um, And also just the habit formation. I think for many people starting to eat in the way that they want to, to lose weight is a big change from what they've been doing. Mm -hmm. And we know that behavior change is hard and just 
setting up those habits and really sticking to them is a challenge for people. For us doing this episode, one of the things that I really wanted to be careful and conscious of is that we're not contributing to fat shaming and actually that you can hold both. You can hold, I'm caring for my body by making these behavioral changes. It's actually a self-care practice as opposed to um, a self-harm practice. And that's a lot about you know how the, the stance that we take and how we relate to ourselves when we're engaging in some of these um, actions. Yeah, I thought several times as I was listening to the interview about the episode that I did with Dr. Emily Sandoz a few months ago about body image and how for so many people, whether you're overweight or not, we just have these really difficult and painful emotions related to our bodies. And so part of part of what we have to do is to work on accepting those those difficult emotions, accepting our bodies as they are, and changing what's not working. So for folks where maybe their eating habits aren't aren't really helpful for their health-related values, we there are strategies that can be helpful. And so sort of holding those two, the acceptance and the change at the same time, is really sort of what you're getting at in this episode, I think, around the behavioral strategies and also you know, sort of accepting the painful emotions involved in making the change. Mm -hmm. So we mentioned Kelly Wilson twice in the episode because it's rare that I can get through an episode without without mentioning him. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) I'm going to mention him a third time here. Uh, Someday we should have a trivia on what episodes does Diana mention Kelly Wilson in. But (laughs) we'll have a prize for the winner. A prize for the winner if you can list them all. But, uh, you know, when I go, like when it all comes down to, and this is a Kelly Wilsonism, is it all comes down to kindness. And sometimes the kindest thing is taking care of our body in this way and working on weight loss. That's right. It's a self-care. Yeah. And we hope that our listeners will, will find this helpful in their journey toward self-compassion and self-care of their bodies. Dr. Evan Foreman is a professor of psychology and is the founding director of the Center for Weight, Eating, and Lifestyle Science, the Well Center at Drexel University. Within the Well Center, he oversees tenure track and research faculty, staff, and postdoctoral fellows, as well as undergraduate, master students, and PhD students. Dr. Foreman has a smaller sub-lab that focuses on designing, refining, implementing, and evaluating innovative behavioral and technology-based treatments for obesity and related eating problems. He's authored approximately 150 manuscripts and is the author of Effective Weight Loss Books. He has a clinician's guide as well as a client workbook, as well as uh, for Oxford Press's Treatments That Work series. In addition, his research has been continuously supported by the National Institutes of Health for over 10 years. And some of his larger funded projects include the Mind Your Health Project, uh, which I'm excited to talk about today, which has been evaluating a novel acceptance-based behavioral treatment for obesity. Project DASH, which is evaluating the effect of gamification and computerized neurocognitive training aimed at helping individuals stay adherent to a healthy diet. OnTrack, which is a smartphone-based, just-in-time adaptive intervention that uses machine learning to predict and prevent lapses from a weight-controlled diet. And ReLearn, which is an investigation of artificial intelligence approach to optimizing intervention features for weight control. Dr. Foreman was a previous chair of the Committee of Science and Practice for HPA Division 12 Society for Clinical Psychology and a recent recipient of the ABCT Mentorship Award. Thank you for being on the show. It's so nice to see you and have you here. My pleasure. It's great to be here. Yeah. 
And today we're going to talk about probably a topic that many people can relate to, which is our struggle with overweight and for actually a large portion of our country, also obesity. And you have a real novel approach that integrates both what we've known about behavioral treatments for obesity, but also more acceptance-based treatments. So I'm hoping that we can dive into that. But I think maybe a, a first place to start is just sort of the lay of the land in terms of uh, the predicament we're in as a, as a country with overweight and obesity and, and why we're here. Uh, I think it's not our fault, but it, as Dr. Gilbert would say, it is our responsibility to um, help with this problem. So why are we here and what is the state of the problem? Yeah, well, that probably is a good place to start um, in terms of this idea that it's not our fault. I mean, one of the one of the, the lenses we can approach the problem through is is evolutionary biology, and the idea that you know we've evolved like other animals to uh, be able to uh, exist, you know, it, it, with maximum fitness and adaptation in a world that existed, you know, tens or hundreds of thousands of years ago, where it was incredibly difficult to acquire enough food to survive and reproduce. And we're in a very, very different world now. So the, the biological imperatives, the kinds of forces that guide us, that, that push us to eat and to eat a certain amount and to eat certain things, those are all well matched to, to a world that existed, you know, 100,000 years ago, but are terribly matched to the current world. So that that's kind of be the way I would first think about why we're here and where we are, which is we're really not a good fit. Our brains are not a good fit for our modern society where you can get you know, pretty much anything or as much as food as you want at almost any time, there's just so much food around us and it's yeah. so easy to get it. And we don't even need to expend any energy to get around or to get food. So I think that's part one to where we are and where the problem is. We had Stefan Guyane on the show a while back, who wrote The Hungry Brain. He talked all about that, how we, there's all these unconscious components of our um, brains that drive us to eat that really are under our control. But your work is targeting the parts that, that are under our control and how to use our understanding of psychology to change some of our uh, eating behaviors. Can you start by talking about the basics of behavioral psychology? Because that's the foundation of uh, what we know in terms of effective treatment. What, what, what is behavioral psychology taught us about helping us to maintain healthy body weight? Yeah, so we know we know um, well now that there are certain changes, behavioral changes that we can make that will move us towards a healthy weight and keep us there. Um, and so, you know, at the most basic level, if we take in, you know, less energy than we uh, than we expend, you know, so if we expend more energy than we take in, then we'll lose weight. And if they're equal, we'll maintain weight. And of course, you use up some energy just by breathing and your metabolism and you know, being alive uses some energy um, and uh, you use additional energy to move around in the world. But it actually doesn't take much in the way of eating you know, to, to equalize that. And so most everyone, certainly in sort of modern uh, America, is, is eating more energy than they really need. Um, and the, so the first behavioral principle is to try to reduce the amount of food energy you're taking in. And then there are, there are sub principles basically that help to do that because that's not easy to do. Mm -hmm. Like an obvious one would be if you're trying to change the amount of food energy you're taking in, you have to have a way of measuring that. 
And so for most people, pretty much everyone, what that means is you have to log everything you're eating, everything you're drinking. You know, I think that component of self-monitoring uh, is, is really important. And the nature of behavioral psychology, like that's one of the basics of behavioral psychology. Start monitoring what you want to change and that'll help you out a lot. But there's also this side effect that happens. My, actually, my master's research was on self-monitoring with uh, food intake versus mm -hmm. appetite signals. Now, mm -hmm. I was using people that were at high risk for an eating disorder. Mm -hmm. And what we found was as soon as you start monitoring your food intake, you get a little preoccupied with food. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you think about food more and you get a little bit actually more distressed around food intake. So there's this paradox that happens that as soon as you start trying to work on changing what you're eating and maybe um, there's a lot of difficult things that are gonna show up. And that's where I think some of your acceptance-based approaches come in that may be helpful. Can you talk about how you've taken behavioral psychology and, and added more in and, and to make it more helpful for people and more doable? Yeah, you're right. Um, there's many of the these fundamental principles, you know, behavioral principles of, of weight control and weight loss are um, difficult to implement and, and they're difficult psychologically for the most part. Mm -hmm. And so what one thing that we've wondered about is could we do more to help people with those psychological challenges? So the example that you were giving or, or similar examples have to do with attempts to monitor what you're eating and then attempts to change what you're eating to comply with the, with your goals as you as you're monitoring. So those can range, you know, they're different for different people. For some people, like you said, monitoring brings up uh, feelings of shame or distress. You know, others that might bring up feelings of hopelessness. Mm -hmm. uh, others just might feel like this is so unfair. Why should I have to do this? And so they feel angry about it. Um, all of those things occur inside our minds. You know, their, their thoughts we're having, their emotions we're having. And if they get in the way with monitoring, which they often do because people don't like doing it in, in part because it's burdensome, but in part because of these psychological experiences like shame, hopelessness, frustration, anger, then you will want to give it up and you probably will give it up. And so we need a way to help people sustain that kind of monitoring even though these experiences are going on off in their heads. Mm -hmm. um, and similarly, um, monitoring weight is another, you know, usually something that has to go along with the weight loss program or weight maintenance program. And, you know, it could be the same thing. Like uh, for someone to step on a scale might produce intense feelings of shame, for example, or hopelessness. And yet you need to be monitoring your weight to figure out how you're doing and make adjustments. So again, we, we try to give people psychological tools to help people, in effect, step on a scale or log a food item, even if at the same moment they're thinking to themselves, I'm so disgusting or, or you know, feeling intense feelings of shame. Can you do the two together for the sake of something that really matters to you? That's a question that we pose and we try to train people with, towards very specific psychological skills that we think will enable them to carry out those behaviors. Can you talk more about what those psychological skills are? Yeah, so um, one of them has to do with um, this construct of psychological acceptance or experiential acceptance. Some people call it distress tolerance. It's this idea that even though we might naturally feel an aversion to these kinds of emotions, so like if we feel shame, we might quickly wanna move away from that feeling. That would be a natural 
reaction. But the, the concept of psychological acceptance tries to empower people to decide for themselves whether it's okay to have a certain emotion. Maybe, maybe feeling shame from stepping on a scale is actually something positive, you know, because stepping on the scale is, is fulfilling something that you really care about and that you want to do. And if that's the case, then the shame that you feel is, is bearable or even, even embraced at, at the extreme. The idea is it may, be, um, it may be totally possible to have an experience of shame and yet do something that only intensifies that experience because you know it's worth it and you're choosing to do it. Same thing with um, even something like boredom. You know, If you're tracking everything you're eating, some people would say, well, that's just so boring. I'd rather be doing something else. But the question we would ask is, is it possible to endure the boredom you know, for the sake of something that's worth it? And what would it take psychologically? So there's this idea of practicing what it's like to feel bored, to try on embracing the feeling rather than pushing it away. Mm-hmm. And, and that sort of um, flexibility or even playfulness when it comes to an internal experience has, I've seen like really profoundly change the way people approach their own minds. Instead of a, an instantaneous reaction, they can say like, oh, let me just see what it's like to feel this way. And, mm-hmm. and, and actually, instead of like kind of naming it as a bad thing, to say like, let me embrace that. Let me feel it on purpose and see what that's like. You said maybe feeling shame is a positive thing. And, and of course, I'm like recoiling. No, shame is not positive. But, but I think what you're alluding to is maybe this shame needs to be approached because the nature of it is that the shame is there. Like if you're feeling bad about your body and you're not monitoring, it's still there. It's not, it doesn't go away. But by moving towards and allowing yourself to confront and and hold the shame, maybe in a different way than just being consumed by it, but holding it with some kindness and connecting to, okay, I'm gonna approach this because I care, there's something bigger that I care about that can dramatically shift your relationship with shame. And actually what's interesting is that shame and stigma are such a huge part of the obesity epidemic because part of what our culture does is blames people, like says, this is your fault and this, you know, you got yourself here and now you got, you got to get yourself out of it. And it's really not the case. Uh, you know, we live in an obesogenic environment. So values work is one component and it sounds like willingness is a, is a component of the, of your treatment program. Yeah. So these are, you know, people have given names to these skills and another one that you, that I think you're talking about is, uh, people in the acceptance and commitment therapy world, like Steve Hayes would call diffusion. Yeah. So it's the idea that you can embrace an emotion or, or a thought, let's say like I'm disgusting or feeling like I'm, I'm ashamed and you can accept it. You can even want to feel it in the sense of, you would expect because you know yourself that when you step on the scale, you're going to have this thought, you're going to have this emotion. The diffusion part comes in by saying, just because you have a thought, like I am disgusting, or you have the emotion of shame, that doesn't mean you're buying into the fact that you ought to feel ashamed, or there's anything to be ashamed of, or there's anything wrong with you, or there's anything wrong with your body, or, you know, it, those, are, those are just constructs that may have entered your mind for various reasons. But you, by, by having this completely different approach where you step back and you can see yourself thinking like, oh, I'm having this thought that I'm disgusting. But that's just a thought. It doesn't mean I, I actually, there's nothing disgusting about me in reality. It's just a thought that has entered my mind or this number on the scale. If that causes me to feel shame, maybe there's there are historical reasons for that. 
but it, it doesn't actually have to mean anything. And, I, and, and so that's, that's where I think the separation comes in and this concept of diffusion is so helpful. And also about prediction, predictive thoughts, like you could think, I'll never be successful at losing weight. So if you have the, if you kind of take of the vantage point of, I want to have that thought because I know I have it and I'm going to expect it. I'm going to embrace it. I'm going to be like, oh, okay, there's that thought. I always have that thought, you know, around this time. That doesn't mean that you believe the thought. You, in fact, what you do is you see it as just a thought that may have no meaning whatsoever. It's just, but it's still predictable because of the way our minds work. Mm -hmm. So I think that, that concept of diffusion, it, it really speaks to what you were saying earlier. Yeah. Sometimes I'll work with clients around exercise because thoughts are a big barrier for, for some people around exercise, yeah. um, especially if you're struggling with overweight, because we got to add in a whole nother layer of now I'm putting on exercise clothes that trigger shame. Yep. And then yep. I am walking into a space where yep. I'm feeling embarrassment and shame and worrying about what people are thinking about me. And sometimes I, I sort of want to map, like map out, okay, what's happening in your head? And then what's actually happening with your hands and your feet? And they can be going in totally different directions. Like your head can be saying, don't go, you, you know, giving you all this feedback. But your hands and feet are still putting on the exercise clothes and getting in the car and putting the key in the ignition and driving there, even though your head is having a tantrum about it. And that's, I think that's like a game changer for folks. That's a total game changer. Yeah, it's, it's um, I, there's a psychologist also has worked a lot in, in the ACT world, acceptance and commitment therapy world named Kelly Wilson, who uh, talked a lot about the hands and feet idea um, in, in a very elegant way, like just like you were, that, that, that by, by remembering, and it's more than a remembering really, but it's like this almost fundamental insight that, that you do have control over your hands and feet and, they, and you can separate that, that those decisions about what your hands and feet are doing from what's going on in your mind. And that's, that's what I was in a way trying to get at when I was saying, we try to help people recognize that you could take a step onto a scale or you could switch a food item and you can do things with your hands or your feet, even if at the, that exact moment you're feeling, you're having the thought, this is completely worthless. There's no point in doing this. I'll never succeed. You, you can actually still choose a different motion with your hand. And that, that is a surprisingly um, a surprising insight, I think, that a lot of people have. And it, it does make such a big difference. So what does your treatment protocol look like? If, if someone were coming to one of your groups, uh, what, what would they be doing on a week-to-week -week basis? We have people um, come in for the first few weeks, and we really talk about some of the fundamentals of um, you know, why it is that people tend to be overweight. I mean... Most people are overweight in America, about 70%. We talk about why that is. We talk about some of the biological reasons. We really help them understand there's nothing wrong with you. You know, this, you're just being a normal person. You're living out the, the human experience in America today. And um, we really try to emphasize the idea that we really want to teach skills, the idea that you would change the way you approach the world, change the way you approach your own mind. And we hope that you'll do a lot of practicing of those skills to get good at them and use them when, when things are difficult, which they definitely will be. This could be a treatment that could take uh, four months, six months, even a year. We've even had some treatments that last 18 months. So this is months long, all of this. So the middle of it often is learning these psychological skills, the ones you were referencing like willingness, like psychological acceptance, that the values piece um, that we haven't talked about a lot yet, but we really um, 
have this notion that we have a lot to talk about, a lot to teach, and a lot, and especially a lot to practice, because it's one thing to just talk about these things in words. It's another to actually be able to live them out in your everyday experience. A lot of the program is still basic behavioral change principles, mm-hmm. the ones you were talking about at the beginning. Yeah. You don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater no. on that one. And some of the research on just mindfulness-based interventions, they don't, they don't do as well without the behavioral component. So it, that's, that's key. And, you know, I think speaking of Kelly Wilson, one of the things that he's talked about is um, you don't want to set uh, a goal that a dead person can do better than you. Mm-hmm. So like, uh, <laughs> that's in the realm of, you know, stop smoking or weight loss because <laughs> a dead person can do both of those better than you, but you want to have a goal that's connected to values and weight loss is not a value. Weight loss is not a value. I will sit with a client and <laughs> we'll spend a whole session on that. Like why weight loss is not a value, but actually there are values that are closely linked to weight loss. So say you're obese and your knees hurt and you can't hike with your partner and you have a value around connecting with your partner in nature, that's a value I can get behind. And when we link up our, our behaviors to those, those values, it, it makes a big difference in terms, I think, of sustaining that motivation uh, for change. And that seems like that's, when you're talking about a year-long program, my goodness, you're gonna need to sustain some motiva- motivation there. Can you talk about motivation and, and how you work with people around that? Yeah, it really is maybe one of the biggest challenges. Um, the way that we approach it is to try to be as upfront as possible, that it's going to be hard to stay motivated. And you know, people usually resonate to that idea pretty quickly because they've realized that there have been times where they've been more motivated and a lot less motivated to make certain changes, including with weight loss, and that they may even have lost quite a bit of weight and then regained it. So we try to be very upfront and connect with with a person's own experience around how hard it is to sustain motivation. And we even talk about why some of those reasons, why, you know, what are some of the reasons that it is so hard to stay motivated? And those include everything from that it becomes fatiguing to make the same difficult changes over and over again. Also, the benefit you get seems to lessen over time. That's people's experience of it. You're not necessarily like changing whole clothes sizes every few weeks, you know, after six months. And the way people react to you may be maybe uh, not so different month after month. And people don't give you much credit for maintaining lost weight, which is another thing, and so on. So there's a lot of reasons that it's so hard to maintain. And then it's, to me, one of the biggest reasons just goes back to our very beginning conversation about how we live in a world where everything conspires to push us in the opposite direction. Mm-hmm. All the food around us, all the ease with which we can get around, and then our own, the own, our own bodies and biologies that we carry around with us. So for all of that, we, we really try to make people aware of just how difficult it is to stay motivated. And we try to set up this notion that you need more than just your usual forms of motivation. It can't be too surface level. Like you were saying, it can't just be like, well, I wanna lose weight or I wanna be at this weight. It's, you really have to connect to something that's so profound, mm-hmm. so powerful that it's going, to, it's going to overcome all of those challenges I was just talking about. And so we really connect with the ACT principles of values and values clarification because we think it's going to be necessary to, to really identify what matters to you so much. You know, what do you care about so deeply that you're actually going to do, you're going to make difficult choices day after day after day, maybe even hour after hour after hour, despite everything pushing back in the opposite direction. So we really believe in that. 
And that is so key, as you mentioned, not only for weight loss, but also maintenance and some of the uh, information coming out of the National Weight Control Registry. So the National Weight Control Registry has been around for like 25 years and they're following people that have lost significant amount of weight, at least 30, you have to be, I think you've lost 30 pounds and kept it off for a year. Mm-hmm. Now they have over 10,000 people. I have the, a client that I've been working with for quite a while that's lost over 130 pounds. I told you about him and he's maintained it and he's now part of the national weight control registry. So he gets to come in and tell me the questions that they asked him when they send the surveys out, which is super oh, fun. Yeah. And I'm sure you're helping design some of those questions, um, but a lot of them are acceptance-based. But, but what they found from this group of people is fascinating, is what is it? It's not that they're following some specific diet. It's not that they're all low carb or um, whatever, low fat, but there's some other key features that show up around people that lose weight and maintain the weight loss. What are those and how does that inform your work? A lot of them really come down to the idea of uh, stability and habit formation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, people who, people who say like, yeah, I, I do something different on a weekend or I do something different when I go on vacation. Those are people who don't end up on the registry. And conversely, the people who say like, I just, I, whatever I do, I just keep doing it seven days a week, no matter what. Um, you know, and, and this includes when they're describing habits related to eating habits related to their exercise, um, I think a lot of their psychological discipline as well. So to me, a lot of it comes back to that. And of course, you could ask, well, what enables someone to do that? And I don't know that the registry really gives us the clearest insight, but I do think the way that our minds work, that when you, once you establish a habit and you, you um, repeat that behavior over and over and over again, it's almost like a ball rolling down a, you know, a soft surface and it cuts grooves into it. It becomes easier to go the same way after a while. Whereas if you're having to make a new choice all the time, like, am I going to have dessert tonight or not? Let me see. That kind of choice, that's a difficult choice. And yeah, maybe you, maybe you make the choice you'd like to make, the healthy choice, so to speak, uh, some of the time. But that also means it's going to take a lot of psychological effort to make a different choice. Or, you know, the idea of going on vacation or weekends, you know, if you're constantly making choices, you're really working against the grain, against your own biology. And I think eventually more and more and more of the time you're going to be making the choice that it does not make you happy, that's not aligned with what you want. So that's one basic principle I think that aligns with the registry is try to develop really good habits and repeat them so that they become easier. And then that goes with sort of like the meta, <laughs> one of the meta ideas of our whole program, which is this idea of control what you can accept what you can't. So the idea is that there are certain things like forming, trying to form certain habits, doing things in a certain way that you might have control over and you should take advantage of that. And there are going to be other things, you know, like how other people behave or certain things your brain does once in a while that you can't control and and not wasting your resources fighting with those things leaves you more energy to, to control the things that you can control. So I think those are those are some of the ways I think our ideas align with the weight control registry findings. Yeah, and some of the other findings in there are people uh, tend to eat breakfast. Mm-hmm. They tend to exercise at least an hour a day, and the exercise is most of it is walking, which yeah. also fits with our evolutionary, mm-hmm. you know, uh, history is that we are walkers and we should be walking all day long, but we're not walking. I mean, I even yep. noticed right now you're standing and shuffling around and yeah. so am I. And part of that is that we've structured our environment so that if we are going to have an hour interview, we're at our standing desks and 
my desk is too high to sit at, so I'm not going to sit on the floor because I won't see you, right? And, and But that's just, I don't even have to make that decision when I walk in to record, right? And exactly. because of that, because we're both standing for an hour, our bodies are going to be a little bit happier than if we sat down for an hour because you're about to go on an airplane. We are going to sit down for yep. time, so might as well yeah. stand right now. Yeah. Um, another component from the weight control uh, registry is also that connection to a bigger purpose or meaning that most of the people have that and they watch less TV. I think it was like mm -hmm. 10 hours or less a week of television, which most likely is linked to both the cues they're getting from the TV that tell you to eat, the patterning that you have around sitting and eating in front of the TV, but also you're moving more if you're not sitting and watching TV in the evening and you're doing some other activities. So a lot of this is like structuring your environment. Do you work with folks around that in, in, in the study of how to how to get your environment set up so it helps you out instead of um, impairs your your health goals? Yeah, yeah, we have a whole list of ideas that this sort of control what you can to make it easier to mm -hmm. make the decisions that align with what you want. And all of the thing, almost all of the things you were saying fit into that. So we, for example, for our physical activity guidelines, we don't require that people walk, but we highly recommend walking. And a lot of that is because we find that walking is the most likely, is the most consistent behavior. Uh, so if you said, I'm gonna swim or I'm gonna run, or you know, I'm gonna do something, the likelihood that you'll be able to keep doing that every day is much lower than walking, which is so easy to fit into a lifestyle. Even better would be to set up a situation where the most obvious way, or maybe the only way you can to get to work or to school every day would be to walk and mm -hmm. it becomes part of your habit. So those are ideas that that totally fit into this idea of do what you can, control what you can to make the decision-making either absent or easier for you. And there's this whole concept of defaults that, that I'm sure you're familiar with where you just make it, you make the obvious choice, the one you want to make, the one that's healthier for you. And that, that just is so helpful to people. And it uh, probably, we find that the number one change in terms of influence on you know, weight and the food you're eating is what food is easily accessible to you in your own home. Mm -hmm. I mean, just to change the, you know, the kinds of food you have in your home, how accessible it is, like, is it frozen or is it just ready for you to eat? Are they snack foods which are already prepared or would you have to prepare it? Have you pre-portioned foods, you know, or are you going to eat an entire bag of something? Right. Um, what do you buy, you know, in the grocery store and where do you store it? I mean, those are the kinds of things that will change how much you eat just because of all these unconscious type decision-making processes that you were talking about earlier. Right. And using when your motivation is high, using that self to help set you up for when your motivation is going to be low. So like on Sundays when I have lots of time and kids are hanging out and I'm working in the kitchen, I'll batch cook a bunch of stuff because I know on Tuesday when I'm in the middle of seeing a number of clients, I'm not going to make a good choice when I open my fridge. But if I have a nice little Tupperware container of my lunch, I'll just grab it and eat it. And so totally. it's like, there's like all these like really simple strategies to help yourself out and understanding that motivation comes in waves, especially, um, and it's in that your motivation to choose healthier foods is also impacted by things like stress and sleep and fatigue and um, external cues. And uh, that that is also, I think, a really important thing to, to work on as well when you're working on maintaining health behavior changes, dealing with stress. Can you talk a little bit about that, how stress impacts our eating habits and how you work with people around that? Yeah, yeah, it's true. There, there are certainly people who 
who describe a lot of their problematic eating happening in reaction to stress or, or other emotions. And what we find is that this psychological acceptance and, or, and willingness principles that we were talking about earlier can really be a game changer so that people, of course, there are ways, and we talk about ways that can help people manage stress in the traditional way, which would be changes you could make in your life that might reduce the amount of stress. And that could be you know, very influential, very powerful, and you should do those things if you can, if they're healthy, if they're worth it, if their values consistent. But again, the bedrock principle here is that no matter what you can change, there are going to be leftover difficult experiences you're going to have. You'll still feel stress no matter what. And the question would be, what can you do about that? And so one thing people, some people do about it is they eat as a way to manage stress. They feel that eating helps uh, lower the, the intensity of stress or distracts them from the feelings of stress. And what we try to help them learn is what this different idea of what would it be like to just be anxious? Can, can you actually practice this idea of not trying to make anxiety go away, but actually just be inside it, see what that's like? Is it possible to view it as an acceptable part of being alive? And can we practice that? And if, you, if we can do that, could you imagine existing in this state and then not eating? You know, because it's okay to keep feeling this if, if you feel it for another three minutes or another 30 minutes or even another 300 minutes. All of those things would be okay. They don't necessitate eating. And, and so the, the, the process of learning to experience or even embrace anxiety or stress goes along with the idea that you don't need to eat to get rid of it. And that's what we try to teach people. Do you do experiential exercises around that? Yeah, we do a lot of experiential exercises because we feel like when we talk to people or talk at them, yeah. they, they just sort of nod, but it doesn't Glaze really over. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we try to use, we've borrowed first the idea from ACT, especially that metaphors are a good way to get people to think differently. Mm -hmm. But we also, even more so, I think, rely on experiential exercises to try to get people to try out different things right in the moment partly to, to get them to try things they might never try and believe in them, and what partly to see what goes wrong and help yeah. figure that out. What would be an example of one that you might do that we could try? Um, oh gosh, there's so many. One that, <laughs> there's a lot, I'm trying to think what people, one that people really do like actually has to do with uh, not stress, but actually what I would say is actually the number one experiential problem that has to do with overeating, which is not emotion, but just the desire for food. Yes. So that's this completely normative response of wanting food, of, yeah. of feeling urges, cravings. So, uh, and the idea that like some foods are so much more appetizing to us than others. And we want them so badly. It's almost like an uncontrollable, it becomes almost a sense of like, you don't have control over what you eat because you want it so badly. Mm -hmm. And people describe like, well, I just can't imagine what it'd be like not to eat that if it's sitting right in front of me, like, how mm -hmm. could I do that? So we do certain exercises where we actually bring in foods that people have told us produce this reaction of like, wow, I want to eat that so badly. I really want that. And we bring in other foods that people have told us like, eh, you know, like I could take it or leave it. Things like, uh, we've done this with like carrots. We've done it with radishes. Actually, we've done it with just different foods that people generally say like, yeah, it's fine, but you know, I could take it. And then we have on the other hand, foods like, uh, chocolate, for example, um, that people, not everyone, but a lot of, or, or, or potato chips or other foods that people say like they produce this really sh long, strong longing and craving. And we have people 
first do things like, okay, let's imagine eating these, each of these foods. What would it taste like? How good would that feel? And now we ask them to um, maybe even taste each food, tiny little morsel of taste, just to really activate the desires. And then, and then they, they really are experiencing in the moment the sense of like, wow, I want to finish this, this piece of chocolate so badly. It tastes so good. I really want it. And then we have them um, practice this idea of like, okay, you know what it's going to be like if, if we were to take this piece of chocolate and throw it in this trash can that's just really dirty and you would never eat it once it's in here. So to, to get rid of this food that you want and instead to eat this piece of radish, you know, what would that be like? And we kind of have them imagine it and then we have them actually do it all while we're discussing this idea of, okay, so you're choosing to give up this pleasure. You're also choosing to have this craving, which could last for a really long time. Um, and you're making this choice, behavioral choice, like you said, with your hands, even though internally your experience, your experience of it is aversive. It's the idea that you're giving up pleasure and taking on discomforts, craving, hunger, et cetera. Now let's, let's practice doing that right now. Then we have them like take, eat the rest of the radish, throw out the chocolate. And it seems like a very simple and in some ways ridiculous exercise, but it's surprising how much people relate to this. And mm -hmm. also what's been surprising is to hear people talk about how it's, it's actually new, a new idea to actually deliberately put themselves in a less pleasurable psychological state on purpose mm -hmm. to like give up pleasure and take on discomfort and do it deliberately and embrace it, knowing it's coming and saying, yes, I'm doing this. Mm -hmm. So those are the kind of exercises we do that people really like them actually. Yeah. It's a, it's a behavioral rehearsal too, because then they'll be able to draw upon that again when they're actually totally. in the And yeah. I imagine we all can relate to doing that in other ways, maybe not with food, but we can think about times that we've sat down and done our taxes, even though we didn't want to sit and do it or emailed somebody back, even though it was really uncomfortable. And it's that same um, muscle, but also I think it's also a leaning in that then releases the pressure. In some ways, when we lean into it, and and make it a choice it yeah. totally changes our relationship to it so true as, yeah. as yeah. opposed to feeling it's it's controlling us yeah i think those words sometimes those words take on i don't know a certain new agey kind of like people sometimes laugh at them but there is something to the idea of leaning in and, yeah. and embracing that i think it really is a a, a fundamental shift yeah. so that instead of saying you know, I hate this feeling so much. I need it to go away. It's so horrible to just say, you know what? It's just a state of being to feel hungry or to feel craving or to feel sad or feel anxious. Those yeah. are bored. You know, it's just a state of being. I don't have to have such a judgment of it. I can actually embrace it. I can lean into it. And, and people eventually will relate, even if they're sometimes hostile or skeptical. Once they sort of get what we're saying, they really uh, appreciate how different an outlook it can people can have of their own minds. Yeah, and taking the stance of curiosity, which I've, you know, I think Steve Pace has talked about sometimes not using the word of acceptance because mm -hmm. that can actually not go over so well. Yeah. <laughs> but but the word curiosity, we can kind of get behind that. Like, aren't mm -hmm. you curious? Like we're in this you know environment here where we can try it out. Aren't you curious to see what would happen? What do you think yeah. will happen to your urge? Yeah. And maybe you'll be surprised. Yep. And more often than not, when we approach the things that we're fearful of, we are surprised because it's not what our mind told us it's going to be like. And even if it is what our mind told us to be like, we're surprised by ourselves being able to handle it. So it's kind totally. of- Totally. And cool. both ends of the extreme are, are yeah. I, I, we find because there's the surprise and the curiosity. And then there's the idea of all the things we know the way our minds work. If you show me this piece of food, I'm going to want it. 
You know, mm -hmm. if you take away this food, I'm going to feel a craving. And it's um, knowing like that that's coming and appreciating this is how we're hardwired, I think can also be embraced. It's like, this is what it's like to be a human being. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm okay with that. So the, the title of your books is Effective Weight Loss, and you're doing research on all this. Not that you just kind of came up with this idea and think it's a good idea, but you're actually doing some, some large systematic reviews and uh, research on it. You recently uh, published a paper in the journal Obesity called Mind Your Health, studying this acceptance-based treatment, and you were comparing it to just standard behavioral therapy for weight loss. Were you satisfied with the results? What were the results like? And what did it tell you about maybe some tweaks you need, you need to make? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, so we've done a, a few studies now and that, that's one of the biggest ones and also one of the longest ones. Mm -hmm. So we um, reported and analyzed these results in two phases. So we, this is a treatment that lasted for a year um, and people met in groups 25 times. And we did, we randomized people to either, you know, the best treatments we have, gold standard uh, behavioral weight loss treatment, or this variant that we made with this acceptance-based treatment. And at the end of the year, we compared people to see how they were doing in terms of their weight losses. And at the end of the year, we saw quite a big advantage of people who got randomized to the acceptance-based treatment. The, the, the gold standard treatment people did well. I mean, people lost uh, about 10% of their weight, which is, which is actually really good. Um, and better than a lot of other trials get for the, those gold standard treatments. So it still did well, but the acceptance-based treatment did even better. So yeah, we were very happy to see that. Um, but of course, we would want to do even better. And there's several respects that we'd like to do better. So first, not everyone you know, got uh, lost as much weight as, as they would have wanted or that maybe we have wanted. Also, um, the... Um, the amount of you know weight loss by by certain benchmarks. Let's say the number of people who uh, made it to ten percent weight loss. It wasn't a hundred percent, of course. It was far less than that. So there's always there's a lot of room for improvements. But maybe the biggest question that people, well, some people would say the biggest question is what about after the treatment's over? And so we did follow people for another two years. In other words, three years after they started to see what happened after after all this time. And what those results show is that everyone started regaining weight. Well, I shouldn't say everyone, but on average, people started regaining weight. Mm -hmm. And um, not that that's surprising, but of course, you're always disappointed to see that. Yeah. And we also saw that the people randomized to the acceptance-based treatment, they regained just as much weight. You know, They regained an equal amount of weight. Now, because they were doing so much better after a year, even at three years, they were still doing better. Yeah. But you know, we were hoping that somehow these skills would inoculate people to, for, from this weight regain. Yeah. So if, if, if we think about it through that perspective, yeah, we would have loved to figure out a way that we can give people strategies that are lifelong and they can continue to use them. Now, it just so happens that like almost no one's ever been able to show anything remotely like that. It's just the nature of the way we are, I think, is if you stop doing something and stop talking about it and stop meeting about it and stop thinking about it, you generally aren't going to keep your new ways of doing things. You're, right. You'll slowly regress back to the way that you were. So that's something we need to figure out is how do we help people? How do we help these changes become you know, permanent, both psychological and behavioral? Yeah. And that makes me think also of this client that I've been working with. Part of, I think, his success in being able to maintain his weight loss is that he continues to meet with me. Mm -hmm. And it, we meet about once a month 
And yeah. and that keeps his eye on the prize in terms of, okay, I'm going to, you know, go in and I know I'm going to check in with Diana. Sometimes we'll do some online email connect, connecting if, if things are getting, you know, stressful. And it, it's sort of like you see the success of 12-step programs. What are they doing to maintain their recovery? They're going still going to meetings on yeah. a regular basis. Yeah. And why would, you know, our relationship with food be any different, that we still do need that continual check-in, which makes me think about some of your work in the field of technology and, and how, you, how you're using technology or if that is an area that could help with people's maintenance. Yeah. We're hoping so. We think so. Um, there's so many ways that technology could be helpful. Mm-hmm. And certainly this premise would be that you might not be able to keep meeting, you know, with a weight loss expert every week for, you know, for the rest of your life. Maybe you can't do that, even if that is, is that would be helpful. So what are alternatives? That's one question. So, for example, one study that we finished recently, we actually had, we, we ran group weight loss programs. Um, but only for a few months. And then after that, we let people get coaching remotely. But what was interesting about this study is the, the coaching could take the form of anything from just a computerized message that just sort of reminded, one, that reminded them what they should have been doing, or maybe it was a message about their progress with weight or food tracking or whatever. Or it could have been a, 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 a text message that was actually from a human coach, so a quick text exchange, or a, the more, a more involved phone call with a coach. and to some extent, this was random, which of the coaching they got in, um, in any given day. But also, the, there was an artificial intelligence, an AI algorithm that was actually watching to see how people responded to all this kind of coaching and gradually started selecting the kind of coaching that was necessary for that person to do well. So if you're someone who all that you needed was like some automated message once in a while, then that's what you got most of the time. But if you're someone who needed... Mm-hmm the telephone coaching, that's what you got. And even if you changed midway through, the, the system would recognize that and that's start to cool. give you more of what you wanted. Yeah. So those are like, that's an example of how technology could maybe conserve our very precious resources and just give people the help they need in, in any given moment. Well, I think one of the questions that, that people often ask is, what do I eat? And it's, I don't think the research actually is there yet to say this is what you should eat. And you have the, the simple equation of calories in, calories out. But I think that there are, you know, there, there, there is new uh, information coming out around the foods we eat, how they impact our microbiome, how they impact our cravings and, uh, you know, eating processed food versus not processed food may impact our, our hunger or fullness levels. Uh, what are your thoughts around food type and, uh, and how we should be eating to support healthy, um, healthy weight, because you can also lose weight, but then have all these, you know, it won't be necessarily beneficial to your health if you're eating sugar-free jello to lose weight. Hmm. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And you can also, I mean, you can also lose weight in a way that will only works for a month or right. a week, you know? Right. So I'd say one of the biggest things to figure out, and I think our field, you know, the science is so far behind in this area, but one of the things to figure out is for you, what can you eat that is a healthy diet that that you can sustain, you know, that's sustainable for you for forever? And I, I don't think that's an easy question at all. And I think it's probably different for some people. For, it's different for different people. So maybe for some people, it actually is, you know, a, a, like a low-carb diet. Maybe for others, it's a, like I, I don't eat meat, for example. Um, and I find that easy. I actually prefer it. But obviously, some people would say, like, I could never live like that and so on. So I, 
I think it, it has to do with um, a matching to what feels sustainable to you, what feels um, enjoyable enough, what, um, what you can make as a habit, you know, what feels, like you said, what feels filling. Um, so I think there's a process of experimentation might be necessary to figure out what works for you in the long term. So mm -hmm. that would be, I think that's like a, has to be one of the first principles. Yeah. Uh, of course, you need to lower the amount of energy you're taking in. I don't think anyone's disputing that. There may mm -hmm. be a lot of interesting complications to that, but how do you do that? I mean, you can, you can say that in a sentence, but how do you actually do that in a way that you can live with forever? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's a balance of, of both enjoyment, sustainability, but then also nutrition and, and health. And it does seem that sort of like your technology, that it needs to become personalized. So is the case for how we eat. And um, yeah. How do you set up, set up your life? Like what would be an example of what you've done today to support your health and uh, movement and you know, all of that? What does it look like for you, obesity expert? <laughs> yeah, well, certainly uh, not not perfect in every regard. A lot far from it. But some of the things that I do that work for me, so they include. Um, so on the eating side, I try to do certain things in a in a fairly regular way, like um, eat like a similar breakfast every day. So I'm not like thinking, what should I eat for breakfast? I'm just eating it because that is my breakfast. Mm -hmm. uh, actually, pretty similar for lunch. Not that I have no variety, but like I have my certain go tos, and I always make lunch ahead of time and bring it with me. So What's I'm a go-to breakfast? People want to know. <laughs> yeah. I like, uh, I like, uh, like hearty cereals, like uh -huh. brand based whole grain cereals. That uh -huh. would be something that like, I find that enjoyable, maybe with fruit, maybe without yeah. skim milk. To me, that's like, I actually enjoy eating that uh -huh. and it feels like reasonably filling and reasonably healthy. And so I can just go to that without questioning i'm not feeling like i'm struggling like oh i wish i was having something else mm -hmm. and i and so i think that helps a lot you know having mm -hmm. that and i would say like where i will get into trouble be like after my meals are over almost you know like if it's like uh in nine o'clock at night and i could mm -hmm. eat anything i want and i'm in my own home where i have like too many choices mm -hmm. that's to me like more of the danger zone you know where there's too many choices so i think having limited choices helps me mm -hmm. and then on the activity side I try to, I now have a routine where I'm biking to work. So it's mm -hmm. about seven miles each way. Mm -hmm. And again, I've, I've come to appreciate how quickly I can get here to work, um, how nice it feels to be outside and riding. And it, it actually is, it really is the easiest and quickest way for me to get to work, you know, even including car, public transit, you name it. So I'm lucky in that way that I've, I've got a habit that, that's ingrained now and feels like the easiest, that default habit. So those are some of the things when they're going well, those are some of the things that I'll put into place. So it's just like, I don't, I'm not thinking about it. It just happens and everything goes well. Yeah, yeah, great. I also don't eat meat, like I was saying, which, which I think is, it's sort of an automatic uh, decision again, because I'm not choosing meats. There's a lot less very high calorie foods that I'm tempted by. Mm -hmm. So that, that helps, I mean, for me personally, that helps a lot. Yeah. So if you were to look at a year from now, there's some rapid changes that are happening in terms of our country. I, I mean, I was just in the gas station and picked up a kombucha. I mean, that's like, yeah. <laughs> you know, that, that was not there a year ago, but it's there now. So yay, I can go get a kombucha at my mm -hmm. gas station. Uh, that may not be in middle America, but in Santa Barbara, California, you can. A year from now, where do you envision us uh, in terms of um, a country? And, and hope, you know, positive changes that our country may be making around movement and uh, weight management? Um, 
let's see, I guess I would say, um, well, there are definitely positive directions. So that, that would be one that would be um, on the optimistic side, maybe we could mm -hmm. say uh, there is increased recognition that, you know, having you know, huge portions, for example, is a good thing. I think there's recognition that it's not a good thing. Mm -hmm. um, so whereas in the past, like the bigger the, the serving size, the better, the big gulps, you know, the big max, everything was yeah. big. I think there actually is uh, some reverse trends there where people are appreciating. And there's even some legislation, you know, like in New York City and other places saying, mm -hmm. let's not even have these, you know, gargantuan sizes of things. Mm -hmm. So that would be one example. Um, there's also, you know, there's been more appreciation that it's good to give people information about how much food energy calories are in food. So there's been legislation to make that by law, you know, available to people when they're going to restaurants or takeout places. Mm -hmm. um, there's recognition also that the environment has to change in certain ways, you know, like school lunch reform is a movement that's, you know, it's not exactly smooth sailing, but, but slowly schools are recognizing that that matters a lot. So I think people, there's increasing recognition and there is improvement across a, like a wide range of areas, but yeah. we still have a long, long way to go. Yeah. Well, and you're at the forefront of it all. So thank you for the research that you do, the work that you do, and um, you're making a big impact on, on our country and this planet by doing that, that research. So appreciate you and um, all that you've offered us. Well, I was glad to be able to talk to you. It was a really great conversation. Thank you. Take care. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. You can find us on iTunes, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you are having a mental health emergency, please dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources on our webpage. Our website is www.offtheclockpsych.com. That's www.offtheclockpsych.com.